uh, Job 29. Um, let me just give you a wee bit of context before we look at this. Job's quite a, a strange book to look at, and it's even stranger if you just dive right in at the middle. Um, it's a book about a man called Job uh, who suffered an unimaginable amount of torment and pain. Uh, he lost his wealth, he lost his health, he lost his children. And the vast majority of the book is taken up with a kind of poetic dialogue between Job and three of his friends, uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, which sound like kind of cool Star Wars names, but you wouldn't want to name your kids after them because these guys are terrible. And they give Job the worst advice and the worst counsel possible. Uh, they basically say to Job that he is suffering because of some sin in his life because he has done something wrong and God is punishing him. And we know from reading the book and from the start of the book that that is not true. And so Job and his three friends are wrestling with this question, why has God caused Job to suffer? Why does God allow innocent people to suffer such horrendous ordeals? Um, The three friends have given forth their advice. They have not been able to come up with an answer. And now we're coming to the last words of what Job himself is going to say uh, before he does eventually get some answers. It's a a long passage. Um, We're going to read 29, 30, and 31, but it's one unit and it's a very important speech. This is the final words of Job before we get some answers. Job 29. Job again took up his discourse and said... Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness, as I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were all around me, when my steps were washed with butter, and the rock poured out for me streams of oil, when I went out to the gate of the city, When I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew, and the aged rose and stood. The princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth. The voice of the nobles was hushed, and their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard, it called me blessed. When the eye saw, it approved. Because I delivered the poor who cried for help, and the fatherless who had none to help him, the blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him who I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. Then I thought, I shall die in my nest, and I shall multiply my days as the sand. My roots spread out to the waters with the dew all night on my branches, my glory fresh with me and my bow ever new in my hand. Men listened to me and waited and kept silence for my counsel. After I spoke, they did not speak again, and my word dropped upon them. They waited for me as for the rain, and they opened their mouths as for the spring rain. I smiled on them when they had no confidence, and the light of my face they did not cast down. I chose their way and sat as a chief, and I lived like a king among among his troops, like one who comforts mourners. But now they laugh at me. 
Men who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock. What could I gain from the strength of their hands? Men whose vigor is gone through want and hard hunger. They gnaw the dry ground by night in waste and desolation. They pick saltwort and the leaves of bushes and the roots of the broom tree for their food. They are driven out from human company. They shout after them as after a thief. In the gullies of the torrents they must dwell, in the holes of the earth and of the rocks. Among the bushes they bray, under the nettles they huddle together, a senseless, a nameless brood. They have been whipped out of the land. And now I have become their song. I am a byword to them. They abhor me. They keep me aloof from me. They do not hesitate to spit at the sight of me because God has loosed my cord and humbled me. They have cast off restraint in my presence. On my right hand, the rabble rise. They push away my feet. They cast up against me their ways of destruction. They break up my path. They promote my calamity. They need no one to help them. As through a wide breach they come, Amid the crash they roll on, terrors are turned upon me. My honor is pursued as by the wind, and my prosperity has passed away like a cloud. And now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have taken hold of me. The night racks my bones, and the pain that gnaws me takes no rest. With great force my garment is disfigured. It binds me about like the collar of my tunic. God has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. I cry to you, O God, for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. You lift me up on the wind. You make me ride in it. You toss me about in the roar of the storm, for I know you will bring me to death and to the house appointed for all living. Yet does not one in a heap of ruins stretch out his hand and in his disaster cry for help? Did not I weep for him whose day was hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? But when I hoped for good, evil came. And when I waited for light, darkness came. My inward parts are in turmoil and never still. Days of affliction come to meet me. I go about darkened, but not by the sun. I stand up in the assembly and I cry for help. I am a brother of jackals and a companion of ostriches. My skin turns black and falls from me and my bones burn with heat. My lyre is turned to mourning and my pipe to the voice of those who weep. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does not he see my ways and number all my steps? If I have walked with false food and my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity. If my step has turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes and if any spot has stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat and let what grows for me be rooted out. If my heart has been enticed towards a woman 
and I have lain in wait at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another and let others bow down on her, for that would be a heinous crime. That would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges, for that would be a fire that consumes as far as destruction, and it would burn to the root all my increase. If I have rejected the cause of my manservant or maidservant when they brought a complaint against me. What then shall I do when God rises up? When he makes iniquity, what shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? If I have withheld anything that the poor desired or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail or have eaten my morsel alone and the fatherless has not eaten of it, For from my youth the fatherless grew up with me as with a father. And from my mother's womb I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perish for a lack of clothing or the needy without covering. If his body has not blessed me and if he has not warmed with the fleece of my sheep. If I have raised my hand against the fatherless because I saw my help in the gate. Then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder and let my arm be broken from its socket. For I was in terror of calamity from God and I could not have faced his majesty. If I have made gold my trust or have called fine gold my confidence. If I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant or because my hand had found much. If I had looked at the sun when it shone or the moon moving in splendor and my heart has secretly been enticed and my mouth has kissed my hand, this also would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges for I would have been false to God above. If I have rejoiced in the ruin of him who hated me or exalted when evil overtook him, I have not let my mouth sin by asking for his life with a curse. If the men of my tent have not said, who is there that has not been filled with his meat? The sojourner has not lodged in the street. I have opened my doors to the traveler. If I have concealed my transgression as others do by hiding my iniquity in my heart, because I stood in great fear of the multitude and the contempt of families terrified me so that I kept silent and did not go out of doors. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps like a prince I would approach him. If my land has cried out against me and its furrows have wept together, if I've eaten its yield without payment and made its owners breathe their last, let thorns grow instead of wheat and foul weeds instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. It's a very difficult passage of scripture to preach on. Um, I tried finding other sermons on these chapters. I couldn't find one. So uh, this is going to be the first ever sermon on Job 29 to 31. Uh, (laughs) I'm sure that's not true, but it is hard. And it's been a struggle trying to get into this. Uh, But it's important because this is the final words of Job, the final defense that Job puts forward. And as I've um, been looking at this, these three chapters this week, I think there is something in this final speech that is so profound and so necessary to grasp if we are to have wisdom in suffering. We saw last week in that wonderful poem of chapter 28 that we need wisdom. 
We need wisdom to get through suffering. And wisdom, Andy was reminding us, is all about understanding the architecture of the universe, how and why life works and functions the way it does. And the only problem with that, that we need that, is that we can't work it out. We can't work out how and why life works. So we, what we saw last week was that we need to try and comprehend not so much um, the architecture of the universe as the architect himself. But Job, Job doesn't just need to know that God is there. He knows that. He doesn't just need to know that God is good. He knows that. He needs to know ultimately where he stands with God. Job doesn't just need to know his place in creation. Job needs to know his place with the creator. We can't know all the answers to why God allows suffering. We can't. But there is answers that we can know. There is an answer to a deeper question that we need to know. And that is, what is God like? Does God care about me If he has caused me to go through such pain and suffering, are we in a right standing with God? And that really is the essence of the the final speech of Job in these chapters. Job wants to know, is he in a right standing with God? That's why I've called this sermon, Why Justification Matters. Justification is such an important word to, to know and to understand. It's such a key word in the Bible. We need to know it. And it means simply to be in a right standing with God. It's a legal term meaning to be declared righteous and blameless in God's eyes. And it's quite appropriate as a legal term because there's something about Job's speech here that's it's kind of like the last defense he makes in a courtroom drama. Job pleads his innocence, and then he, at the end, basically calls God to come into the dock and to answer him. You know, something's um, really been sticking with me this week as I've thought about this. Job, Job just wants to know, he just wants to know that he's justified. And something's really been sticking with me uh, as I've thought about this in this passage of Scripture. Um, I had a minister tell me this week about a woman he was counseling who was a follower of Jesus and she uh, lost her son to suicide. Now, I cannot fathom the pain um, that she must have felt. And as I've been looking at the book of Job, I've tried to imagine what would she hear from Job? What would help her? Because there is something that she needs to know. There is something that Job needs to know. Does God care Are we justified? Are we in a right standing with him? Because when you suffer, it is hard to believe that you are in a right standing with God. Job doesn't feel it. We can see that in these chapters. And we must recognize something very key and very important as we look at this. On the whole, Job is commended by God as being wise. We saw that at the end of the book. Job, on the whole, says stuff that is good, but there is stuff that Job says that is wrong. And there is stuff that later on in the book, Job will repent of ever having said them. And some of that stuff comes, I think, in these final chapters of his speech. So here's what we'll do tonight. 
and take a quick glance, um, a very quick glance over the content of the poetry. I don't have time to go into some of the details. Some of the terminology is a bit archaic. We've got to remember this is probably around about three or four thousand years old. Um, so talking about phrases like my steps were washed with butter, that doesn't sound like blessing to us. It sounds kind of slippy. Um, there's some terms in, in the poetry that we just don't have time to go into the detail. I just kind of want to get a big bird's eye view of what has been said in this final speech with Job. And then I want us to look at what is the wisdom that we can glean from this passage as followers of Jesus Christ. Um, So you'll see an outline on your service sheet that should hopefully help you as we navigate through this. So firstly then, what do we see in Job's final words? Well, first point, we see in chapter 29 that Job longs for his past friendship with God. Um, this is this is fascinating. This is the first kind of insight we get into what Job's life was like before his suffering, and what a portrait he paints for us. Look at how he begins in verse two: "Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when His lamp shone upon my head, and by His light I walked through darkness, as I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent." Job's thinking back to those moments that that he remembers so fondly before the dark days of suffering when he felt that he was friends with God. I want to be back in those moments, he says, where it felt that that if I was lost in darkness, I could just come to God and, and he would be like a lamp shining me and guiding me. I want to be in those moments where I was so sure that God was with me, where I was so confident that what I knew about him, what I knew about the gospel was true and real. I want to be in those days where life seemed to make sense to me. I don't know if you've ever been in the pits of depression and suffering. Maybe you can resonate with what Job feels there. I long to be in the days when the world made more sense, where I thought I knew God, when I thought I was close to God. Job wants to be in the days where he was friends with God because when he was friends with God, his life seemed to be blessed. And in verse 7 to 25, Job describes for us what that blessed life looked like. Now, now what's interesting in these verses is the blessing that Job talks about is not a blessing of having stuff for himself. It's not because it's not like he was on God's side and therefore he got loads of good stuff. But the blessing that he remembers when he was friends with God was the fact that he used to be a blessing to others. Remember, Job does not follow God because of what God can give him. Those who walk closely with the God of grace will inevitably desire to show grace to others. And that was Job, a good, godly man. He used to go out into the city square. This is what he describes. It's very vivid. You can imagine this. Imagine the, the, the busy kind of hubbub of, of, uh, of Princess Street at festival time when there's loads of people there. Imagine even that there was royalty there. And then Job comes and everyone is quiet because here is a man they respect. Here is a man they want to listen to. The princes and the nobles were silenced, verse 9 and 10. And why was Job held with such honor? Why was Job so well respected? Well, it's because of what he did in verse 11 to 17. He cared for the poor. He cared for the widows. He cared for the fatherless. 
He did the seeing for those who were blind. He did the walking for those who were lame. He was viewed by people as a righteous judge. Verse 14, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. Job was a blessing to people. And they loved him because he was so selfless and caring. And he thought, therefore, that because he was a faithful man of God, God would let him die at peace at home in his old age. Surely, verse 18. And notice the very end, verse 25, just how respected. Job sat among his people as a king, a selfless man who blessed others, who lived out the grace of God, a wonderful counselor. That's what Job was like. And that's what Job wants to come back to. And the root of all this is not a longing for a good status in society, but a longing for a good status with his God. He's longing for the friendship of God. He's longing for the days when he knew that he was on God's side. He thought God was with him. He thought he was doing God's work. And that's what, make what, that's what makes what happened to Job so shocking. Chapter 30, second point. Job laments his perceived separation from God. It's a carefully worded point, his perceived separation from God. But now, Job says, all that has been reversed. Chapter 30 is a radical contrast, the heights of chapter 29 and the depths of chapter 30 that he fell to. Once respected by princes, now Job is the subject of ridicule by wicked men. I was reminded of this um, this week. Um, one of my um, one of my weird kind of interests is Russian history. Um, so I've got I've got quite strange interests: heavy metal music, fly fishing, uh, and Russian history. So. Um, uh, Thankfully, my wife's also a history nerd, so we were watching this documentary on um, the history of the Tsars in Russia. It's a fun night in the Robertson household. Um, and we were watching this and learning about Tsar Nicholas um, Romanov II, who's the last Tsar of Russia. And what was striking in this documentary is that he was a man uh, who basically had everything, one of the wealthiest and most powerful men at that time when he ruled. He lived a life of complete luxury. And you saw video clips of crowds of people coming to see him as he celebrated the anniversary of his coronation. And then when the Russian Revolution happened, he was driven out of the palace and he was mocked and he was humiliated. He was exiled to Siberia and eventually him and his family were killed. And they were talking about how when they had driven him out of the palace, soldiers and stuff used to walk in and just make fun of him and ridicule him. A man that they had once respected and now in the dirt of life ridiculed by people. That is what has happened to Job here. He is mocked, though, by the lowest of the low. That description in verse 1 to 8 of these, um, these people who are ridiculing him. In verse 9, now I have become their song. I am a byword to them. They abhor me. They keep aloof from me. They do not hesitate to spit at the sight of me. Laughed at and humiliated. You know, his name, his name's a byword. Job's name is a name of ridicule now. You can imagine it, people talking at the time about, oh, you're becoming a Job, meaning you're becoming cursed and worthless. 
That's what they say. All Job's dignity is stripped bare. Life under God's smile is what he thought he had in chapter 29. And now in chapter 30, he feels he's got life under God's judgment. He is hated. He is all alone. He is in emotional, mental, spiritual, and physical torment. Verse 16, my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have taken hold of me. The night racks my bone and the pain that gnaws me takes no rest. With great force, my garment is disfigured. It binds me about like the collar of my tunic. God has cast me into the mire and I've become like dust and ashes. I cry to you for help and you do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. Night after night, Job has been suffering alone in an agony. Something I was thinking about, when Job's friends come and, and sit to comfort him, I often thought that was like an immediate response to what had happened. I don't think so. I think Job has been in this state of pain for months and months and months with no answers before his friends come and they have this poetic discussion. Crying out to God, why, why, why? He feels strangled by it, verse 19. He feels like he's sinking into a pit. He has cried out. He feels as useless as dust and ashes. So he turns once more to God and he says, verse 20, I cry to you for help and you do not answer. I stand and you only look at me. Job longs to know why, God? Why are you silent? Do you see, it's not just the fact that he's suffered. It's not that he's lost his dignity, his health, his children, his job, his prosperity. It's not that all those things have gone. It's that God is just silent about it. I want to know, God, why you won't speak to me. Why you just won't explain. I thought I was in a right standing with you. And he basically says, and 24 to 31. I treated others with kindness because I was following you. Why don't you treat me with kindness? It's emotional honesty in Job. One of the things that I think struck us as a church as we've looked at this book is the emotional honesty of this man. It's very raw and real from the pits of suffering. And what is tormenting Job is the fact that God might not be on his side and he just doesn't know why. One of the most painful things you can experience is the pain of rejected love. Does God care? Well, Job feels that he doesn't. Thirdly, finally, we see then Job plead his innocence before God. He wants to be friends with God. He feels that he isn't. And he ends by bringing forth his innocence. Job feels that there's a relational breakdown with him and God. And he wants to know, why, why does God treat him like an unrepentant sinner? So in these final words, he bring, brings forth charges that God might have against him. And he asks to be judged on his actions. He begins by ascertaining that he is sought not just outwardly to do things right, but inwardly. I made a covenant with my eyes, God, that I would not look at a woman lustfully. And he starts that way by saying, it's not just outward morality I was trying to show. I have fought the hard-fought battle of temptation to work hard at making my heart pure and not disguising it with morality. And then he goes on to list 
all these sins. If, if, if I have done this, if I have done this, if I have done this, pleading his innocence against them in verses 5 to 34, his innocence against adultery, injustice, greed, violence, trusting in wealth, idolatry, vindictiveness, and a lack of hospitality. Job knows the importance of the innocence of his heart, his actions, his character, and his desires. He never claims to be sinless. We've seen that already in the book of Job. But he does claim to be repentant, penitent, a guy who's trying his best to live for God. And now in these final words, he calls God into question. Verse 35. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Job has made his case for his defense, and now he boldly calls for God to step into the dock and to answer him. Now, what are we to make of this final speech that this broken and suffering and tormented man of God makes? I mean, he's not sinless. Does Job really expect God to take him seriously? What's surprising in the book of Job is that God does take him seriously, very seriously. God does answer him and God does speak. You see, Job knows that his standing before God matters. He pleads the only thing that he can plead, his innocence. He has fought hard to be faithful to God. He's not showing off. He's not being a Pharisee and trying to lord his superiority over his friends. All the good Job did, he did because ultimately he was faithful to God and he wanted to be faithful to God and he wants to know why then is he not in a right standing with God. He wants to know he's justified. And it ends verse 40. Dramatic ending. The words of Job are ended. And they are. But we must realize the book of Job is not ended. Job needs to be corrected. Job does need some answers. And they will come. But it's not the answers that Job expects. So let's ask ourselves. That's what I think is happening in that final speech. What wisdom can we get from Job's final speech? And there's two key things, I think, from this final uh, speech of Job. Firstly, Job's speech helps us understand the suffering of our Savior. And secondly, Job's speech shows us the importance of knowing our justification. Firstly then, Job's speech helps us understand the suffering of our Savior. Look, we've got to see that in many ways, whenever we read this book, in many ways, Job is a really unique individual. God picks him out over every human being on the earth and says, here is my servant Job. There is none like him, a man who is blameless and upright, who turns from evil. Wouldn't it be great to say that we were like Job in chapter 29? That we had that selfless care and compassion that we had. That we were so well respected because of the way that we treated others. But we, we can't really say that's us. And in many ways the suffering he describes in chapter 30. The suffering we see throughout this entire book. It, it's so extreme that there are few of us who can comprehend what he must have felt like. None of us have really been to the heights that Job was in, in chapter 29. And none of us have really been to the depths that he fell to in chapter 30. And in 31, I would love to be able to say 
like Job, that I am guiltless of all these sins, innocent and pure of heart. But I can't. You see, Job's unique. And the reason he stands out as unique is that Job, although a real man and a real person in history, is nevertheless meant to be a prophetic picture of Jesus, the Son of God. What happened to Job happened to Jesus thousands of years later and to degrees infinitely greater. And as we read the book of Job, it helps us, I think, to understand the suffering that Jesus Christ faced. Job enjoyed an intimate relationship with God as a friend, as a father with his son. That's what he describes in 29.2-5. Not only that, he was treated as a king amongst his people, verse 25. Well, Jesus enjoyed the friendship of God for all eternity because he was God's son. Jesus wasn't just viewed like a king among his people. He literally is the king of all of us. He is the one who is rightfully in charge. Verse 12, chapter 29, when Jesus was on earth, he was the king who cared and loved the poor and the needy. Verse 15, he is the king who literally restored the sight of the blind. The king who made the lame walk. The chief comforter, the Lord of all. The one who was perfect in righteousness and justice. Job may have pleaded his innocence in chapter 31, but Job wasn't sinless. Jesus, on the other hand, was perfectly sinless in every way. The king worthy of all worship. The one who made the universe, our God. The one who loved selflessly and unconditionally. And what happened to him? He was beaten. He was mocked. He was humiliated. He was stripped naked. He was spat on. He was insulted. He was whipped within an inch of his life. And he was killed and crucified. Killed by the ones that he came to rescue. You see, the torment that Jesus the innocent faced... It's unimaginable. That fall from the throne next to his father to the depths of the cross and the greatest pain that he bore, the perfect son of God, the greatest pain he bore was when he was crucified and it wasn't a pain that came from man, it was a pain that came from God his father. When Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't just a death. But it was the moment where he took the anger of God for our sins and our wrongdoing. He took the judgment of God upon himself. Job felt like he was under God's judgment. He wasn't. Jesus was literally abandoned by his father. And he did it so that we would never have to be. It's our sacrifice, our substitute our Savior, what pain he felt, what depths he fell to. The Apostle Paul expresses it like this in Philippians 2. Jesus, though in the form of God, did not account did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now this radically changes our approach and our understanding of God's role in suffering. Do you see, God himself has suffered. 
He's not removed or distant from the pain that we feel, but he has suffered to degrees that we cannot imagine. The contrast between, between Jesus' glory and his humiliation is way more staggering than Job's. And he did it all for you. You see, unlike Job, Jesus willingly chose to suffer. He chose to fall from the heights of heaven to the torment of the cross so that you and I could be righteous in God's eyes, so that we could be justified. And this is the second point. Job's speech shows us the importance of knowing our justification Job just wants to know that he is friends with God. And we must get this right. Because what Job longed for, we today, because we live in the time after the cross, can know with certainty. That doesn't mean we don't feel what Job felt. We can feel. We can even feel what Job felt in verse 21 of chapter 30. That God has been cruel to us. We can feel that we're not in a right standing with God. How do we know that we're not? (laughs) That woman who lost her son, that I mentioned at the start, the family of a Christian man who's been murdered by extremists, the person who has faced a debilitating illness, or even worse, has had to watch someone they love face an illness and slowly die. Does God care about them? The people who have been so empty and lost on their knees in tears and praying and yet met with nothing but deafening silence. It's as if God just stands there and looks and says nothing. How can they know that they are in a right standing with God? Does he care? He can stop all of this, but he allows it to happen. Does he care? Does he care about you? Absolutely yes. And the only way we can answer that question with such unwavering certainty is because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus died to make us right with God. And that is done. That's happened. We are now and forever at peace with God. He will not let us go. Suffering, torment, depression, despair, they will not change that. As the Apostle Paul writes, neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or as he says in Romans 5 verse 1, we are justified by faith, therefore we are at peace with God. You are in perfect standing with God if you trust Jesus. And the thing that really cements that fact is that it's not down to you If it was down to you, we could never be certain. If we had to appeal to our righteousness as Job does here, we'd be so filled with doubt. But we are clothed in righteousness, if I can use Job's language in verse 14 of 29. But it's not our righteousness. It's Jesus' righteousness. We don't do anything. We do nothing to be saved. Jesus does it all. So if you trust him, God looks at you now as a sinner, as if he is gazing at the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, his beloved son. And he looks at us and he says, you are my beloved son and daughter. With you, I am well pleased. So why is it then, if that's true, 
Why is it then that God seems so silent so often in times of turmoil? Well, we can't answer that. I don't know. But because Jesus suffered and died for me, there's one thing I know it cannot be. It cannot be that he does not care. It cannot be that he is cruel. And it cannot be that he does not love us. He is so infinitely greater than us. Job, Job will begin to see this when God speaks to him. He's so infinitely greater that we can never really comprehend fully what he will do but we can know with certainty that he loves us because what more precious thing could God give to us to prove that than the blood of his own son? And if he can use the most horrific event in human history, because the most horrific event in human history was the moment when the perfect son of God had his arms stretched out and nailed to a beam of wood, if he can use that to bring about the greatest moment in human history, the salvation of sinners then maybe he can work some good with the troubles that we face in our life. We need to know this because justification will be your lifeline in times of darkness. Keep crying out if this is you. This may well be you. Keep crying out to him because as a justified sinner, you have his ear, even if it feels his silence is choking you. Remember the cross and hold on to our suffering Savior. We need him. And if you haven't come to trust Jesus, now is the time because you need this now. You need to be in a right standing with God. If not, you will be lost forever in darkness and judgment. There is no hope outside of Jesus Christ. So come to him and just trust him. That's all you need to do. Let him pay the punishment for your sin. Let him justify you and make you right before God. Because that's what he came and suffered and died to do for all of us. Let me close by reading to you the words of a poem. Well, it's really a hymn, but it's, it's written so well and so um, poetically. It's a hymn called My Song is Love Unknown. In many ways, this sums up, I think, just everything we see in this final speech of Job, the suffering of the innocent Jesus to make us friends with God. My song is love unknown, my Savior's love to me, love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. Oh, who am I that for my sake my Lord should take frail flesh and die? He came from his blessed throne, salvation to bestow, but men made strange, and none the long for Christ would know. But, O oh, my friend, my friend indeed, who at my need his life did spend. Sometimes they strew his way, and his strong praises sing, resounding all the day, hosannas to their king. Then crucify is all their breath, and for his death they thirst and cry. Why? What hath my Lord done? What makes this rage and spite? He made the lame to run. He gave the blind their sight. Sweet injuries. Yet they at these themselves displease and against him rise. They rise and needs will have. My dear Lord made a way. A murderer they save. The prince of life they slay. Yet steadfast he to suffering goes that he his foes from thence might free. Here might I stay and sing. No story so divine. Never was love, dear King, 
Never was grief like thine. This is my friend, in whose sweet praise I all my days could gladly spend. Let me pray. Father, we need to know where we stand with you. We need to know it now, when times may be good. We desperately need to know it when we are hit with times of anguish and turmoil. Because you're God, you're in control, you're sovereign. You govern all things. You are eternal. And we need to know where we are with you. And my Father, I thank you that if we have faith in Jesus Christ, we know where we stand. We know that we are justified. We know that you love us and that you are for us. We can know it with such certainty, even though we may feel far from you. So Father, please beat that truth into our heads. May we know it at a deeper level. May we spend our lives knowing what it means to be in a right standing with you. May we spend our lives knowing our Savior, Jesus Christ, and being enraptured and enthralled with him. Because we know that's what we'll spend eternity doing. Father, help us to hold on to that in the times of darkness and grief. Help us to trust you and to look to you at all times. And Father, if there are people here who have not come to trust Jesus, I pray, Lord, that they would and they would be saved. Because that's what our King suffered and died to give us. Salvation and righteousness and that perfect standing before you. Father, we want to praise you Regardless of what happens in our lives, it is well with our soul. In Jesus' name, amen.